that area back and forth a little bit as we go through our message this morning. But in Genesis chapter 6, it's a very familiar um, story that we find. It's the story of Noah and, uh, and the flood. Now, starting in, in chapter 6 here, if you have an answer to all the questions that, that I can ask between verses 1 through 5, let's have a talk um, about, about those. But we're going to start in verse 5 here. And in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have made from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. I am sorry that I have made them. Now, obviously, looking at the the condition and the generation of the people of the time of Noah was a very wicked and perverse generation. It was, it was one that had grieved God's heart so much that he said, I'm sorry that I have actually created man and I'm going to destroy them all. They're going to be wiped from the face of the earth, all men, all creeping things, the birds of the air, everything will be wiped out. But, verse 8, Noah. But Noah. Noah, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, God has just pronounced judgment on the entire world, and he described the entire world as, as those who, even the very thoughts of man, were wicked continually, and for that reason, he was going to wipe out mankind. He was going to wipe out all of the animals, everything that was upon the face of the earth, but Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this simply means that Noah, he had found favor. Now, the opposite of grace and favor is animosity. Now, God, no, there's no question that he had animosity towards the, to the rest of humanity as a whole because they were so evil. And, then, and as he looked down as people who had been created in his image and he had given them the moral law and written it up on their hearts, they chose to ignore it and to push it aside and to live their own way and go against the very nature of who God is and who he intended them to be. And God said, enough is enough. I'm going to wipe out all of mankind. I'm going to destroy the world that I created. But Noah... Noah somehow found grace in the eyes of God. In the, in, the, in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation, in an evil time, we look and we see Noah has found grace. But why Noah? We also see that the grace that he found gave him the privilege and the ability to escape the worldwide flood that was to come. But why Noah? Why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Another question that we'll ask this morning is, you know, how, why, how might we apply this to our situation today? I don't think we have to look very far to have an understanding that just as it is in the days of Noah, it's very comparable to what we see in today's world. Would you agree? Wickedness, evil, people going against God, rejecting God, living their own way, going astray, a sheep without a shepherd. We look at the world in which we see and we can say, wow. This is very similar to what Noah had gone through or the generation that Noah lived in. He lived in a place where, where God was, his, his heart was sorrowed and grieved that he had made man and he was ready to bring his judgment upon the world and judge this world in righteousness. 
But why did, but why did Noah find grace? How do you do this? In, in, a, in a wicked and perverse world, would you like to be the one who can, who can find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Would you like to know how? Would you like to know how Noah was, found himself in a position of God's grace in a perverse and wicked generation? Well, if we continue to read, as we see in verse 5, 6, and 7, God, God said that he had pronounced his judgment was going to come. He was going to destroy everything on the face of the earth. In verse 8, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 9, it says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. I believe that is why Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We look at there and he says that he was a just man. He was a just man. And some, some of the translations, it calls him to be a righteous man. I have no, I have no question that this is um, what is referring to his moral relation with God, his relationship with his creator, that he had submitted his life to, to God and had a relationship with him and sought his way of life upon himself. He was a just man. But also in the midst of the perverse and wicked generation in which he lived, it says that he was perfect in his generation. And think about that. If he lives in a world very similar to the one that we live as far as the level of wickedness and evil that is going, going amongst us and the temptations that were, that were present in his everyday life as it, was, as it was put before him on a day-to-day -day basis, yet Noah found himself in the grace of God because in the, also he was perfect in his generation. Now, what does that mean? It's completely and totally sinless? Absolutely not. Now, if God was to come through and wipe out all evildoers at that time, Noah would certainly be included because there's, no, there's not been a sinless man other than Jesus Christ. But however, he lived his life in a way that was blameless before men. In a wicked and perverse generation, whenever Noah's name would come up, it's like, yeah, Noah, that, that's a good guy. You want to hire Noah? You're looking to, to, uh, to, to hire him for a job? Yes, he's very trustworthy. Oh, did Noah tell you this about, about that? Yeah, you can believe Noah. Noah's an honest man. He is good and he is a blameless man amongst the generation in which he lived. He was perfect in his generation. Not sinless, but there were no blatant faults. He showed himself to live a righteous life before man, even in the midst of the wickedness and the temptation that was there upon him. He walked, very, um, he walked very close to God, which brings us to our next point. He was a man of moral integrity among the people. But the last thing we see here in this verse is that Noah walked with God. How was he able to be perfect amongst the generation? How was, he, how was he able to be seen as someone with no faults amongst the people in a, in a wicked generation? Well, it starts whenever we, he addressed his walk with God. He had a very close fellowship with God. He understood who God was. He understood who he was in respect to who God was. And he submitted his life to him. And he walked with God continually on a day-to-day -day basis. And that gave him the ability to be seen by the generation as someone who is perfect among them one who is complete, one who is mature, one who is blameless because he walked with God. Now, he may have gotten this example from a couple of different people as we understand that Enoch, he was, um, he was, uh, he was Noah's great-grandfather. He was also known as someone who walked with God. He could have seen the example there in Enoch. But something also that, that I've kind of come to 
kind of come to think about this is that, yes, he was, a, he was perfect in his generations. He was a just man. He was a righteous man. He walked with God continually. But how did he learn how to do this? He didn't have a Bible, did he? Ten Commandments hadn't been written yet. But being created in the image of God and having the moral law of God written upon his heart and also the people that he had around him who could instruct him and tell him about a few things. Now, if you actually kind of graph out the, the timeline of the book of Genesis, you know that, you can, that, you know that Adam, God, the first man, he lived long enough to be on the earth with, um, with Noah's father for about 100 years. Think about that. Adam lived that long. And actually all of the generations after Seth, Enos, and his great, 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 great grandparents were all still alive when Noah was alive. So what was he, well, actually what Noah's dad was actually able to do during that time is he could, Noah's dad, before Noah was born, he could have gotten his dad, his, his grandpa, his great, 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 great grandparents all together and go find Adam and Adam could share with them what it was like to live in the Garden of Eden and to warn them about a life that does not reflect what God calls you to do. They could learn about the, how, how God judged them and kicked them out of the garden for their disobedience. And they had the personal first-hand testimony by Adam which could, be, which could be passed down through generation of generation to the point where we see Noah had the ability to learn from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather how life was supposed to be lived. But however he came to this knowledge, we understand that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was a just man, a perfect man in his generations, and Noah walked with God. But the fact that Noah walked with God, it also gave him the desire to do what God asked of him to do. The last thing, or one of, the, one of the other things that we see is how he found grace in the eyes of the Lord is that he did according to all that the Lord commanded. Twice in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 22, as well as Genesis chapter 7 and verse 5, we see where it is recorded that Noah did all that, was, that God had commanded him to do. He did what he had told him to do. Now notice in, in chapter 6, whenever God comes to Noah, starting in verse 13, it says, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy the earth. Make a boat, Noah. At this point, Noah doesn't know that the, that the world is going to be flooded. And actually, he doesn't actually instruct um, Noah that he's actually going to bring 40 days and 40 nights of rain until seven days before it's time to board the ark or seven days before it actually happens. So God, God lays out the plans and says, Noah, I'm going to destroy the entire earth, make a boat. I want it this wide, I want it this long, this tall, with this many decks, I need a window and a door on the side, get it done. And it says that Noah did all that God had commanded him to do. He went ahead and built it. And then whenever it goes time, time for him to get put into the ark, in, verse, in chapter 7, it says, Come into the ark, you and all of your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And he gives him a, few, a little bit more of instruction. And in verse 5, it says, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Do you want to know why, why Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Because he was a just man. He was perfect in his generation. Um, he did all that the Lord had commanded him to do. 
and he walked with God. And the last thing that we, we find here, but you'll have to go to 2 Peter chapter, five, chapter 2 and verse 5 to find this out. But in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, And he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Not only did he walk the walk, but he talked the talk. He shared the message of the righteous living. He said he went and preached the righteous message. He not only lived the righteous life, but he also proclaimed the need for righteousness, even though he lived in a very ungodly and wicked generation. He preached righteousness. This is why Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is why the Lord came to Noah and said, look, I am going to destroy the entire planet. You build an ark. That's how he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Noah certainly was an unusual man, maybe a peculiar people in his generation. But maybe this is why we can see that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But what about ourselves today? Is there a need for us to find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Is there a need for that? In this wicked generation, do you think we need to be in a place of God's grace? Absolutely, we're being pulled and we're being tucked and we are being tempted in every different direction. In every, in every possible way that we are, we are um, in, in living our lives, we, we see it. It's on our doorstep, it's on our TVs, it's on our, it's on our phones. We are being drawn away. We are being taught things that are contrary to the word of God. We need to figure out how to find this place of God's grace in this wicked generation. But before we get into the how, I always like to know why, right? I'd like to know why. If you really want to get down to the, why, to the how or, and actually be, be driven to do the, do the how, you want to know why. Why do we need to do this? Well, for the exact same reasons Noah did, we don't have. The reason why, the reason why that, um, that it was good for Noah to, to find grace in the eyes of the Lord was the fact that a worldwide flood was coming. Now, according to what the Word of God tells us, that's not going to happen again. So if you find yourself in God's grace, it's not going to be to, to, um, to miss out or escape the worldwide flood. That judgment has already happened. That judgment has passed by the rainbow that was spread across the sky. God has promised that will never happen again. But the reason why we need to find grace in the eyes of the Lord is very similar because we will face the promise of the end of the world. There is a judgment that is going to come. And we need to make sure that upon that time, when it comes in, we need to find and make sure that we are finding ourselves in a place of God's grace upon that time. Before, it would be much, much better. But as we take a look into 2 Peter chapter 3, this is explained to us very, very well. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, what we have here is that, is that Peter is speaking to these people the second time he's written the second letter, but he's also reminding them of something. So starting in verse 1, it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of what? Reminder. In other words, we've talked about this before, but however, it is important enough for me to readdress it to you. So listen up, this is very, very important. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first. First of all, I need you to get this. Now, how many of y'all have heard this verse? 
that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Now, I'm not too naive to know or to think that, yes, everybody who has lived throughout these generations, as the, as the moral fabric of our world tends to deteriorate more and more every year, that, that most everyone through almost every generation since Jesus Christ believed that they were in the end times. But what I do know is this. I can't tell you when, when Jesus Christ is coming back. I can't do that. But I can tell you that we're closer now than we ever have been. And things are not looking so good. They are getting worse. We do have scoffers that live amongst us. We do have those people who mock the very words of God. It says that. Um, it says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. That is present in our day to day. So this is very important for us. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What are they doing there? You know, we're preaching a gospel that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and he is coming back. But since he hasn't come back in over 2,000 years, people are saying, where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming back because he's not back. Does that make sense? Yeah, where is he coming? Everything is going just like it has been. He says, this, um, it says For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. It went down this evening. It's going to come up tomorrow. We're going to have another day. Everything is going to continue on and be just fine. Scoffers will come in those last days, living out their lives according to their lustful desires and saying, where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming. And in verse 5, it starts us a list here of things that they will willfully forget. What does that mean? Willfully forget. Willfully forget. <laughs> Willingly ignorant of. Choosing to see the truth and yet reject what is actually there. Think about that for a moment. Willingly ignorant. If you look it up in the Greek, you'll know what that means, right? Dumb on purpose. They're willingly ignorant of the truth, and the, the few things that they are ignorant of or the few things that they are, they are suppressing and choosing not to believe is listed here. It says, for by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What is that saying? They're willingly ignorant of the fact that this world is God's creation created by the very mouth of God. They reject that truth. They refuse to do it, whether they philosophically rule it out to begin with or the fact that they don't like the idea of having a creator to whom they must be accountable. But for whatever reason, in the science and the philosophical evidence that is actually on the plate right now is heavily in the favor of a great creator but yet they choose to be willingly ignorant of that in order to deny God's existence. That is alive and very well today and very widely spread. Now looking in verse 6, it says, by which, what is that which? By which is talking about the word of God again. It says, and you can actually say, by the word of God, the world that then existed perished being flooded by water. Now why would you want to be willingly ignorant of that fact? Why would you want to be willingly ignorant of that? Because I'm going to tell you, if you have a creator, 
who created everything by the word of his mouth and also by his very word, he judged this world in righteousness. He has not only created, but he has the right to judge his world. It's his, his creation. So this is why they would be willingly ignorant of the fact. If they can rule God out completely and live their life according to their own, their own pleasures, their own desires, their own lusts, and move forward and do what they want to do, they can live it without guilt. They can live it without recognizing who God is and the fact that he is going to judge them and that he can judge them. Actually, you will find today the very hostile atheist groups that they, that they despise the God of the Bible because he does judge his people. Because he killed the Canaanites. That's the first thing that they'll go to. He's an evil dictator. Well, I want to tell you about the Canaanites. For 400 years, they were offering babies up to Molech on a molten hot idol. They would put the babies on there and they would burn to death. And they would play the drums louder and louder and louder so they would over, over, um, overdrown the babies crying so the mothers couldn't hear it. And over 400 years of God extending his grace to them, he said, enough is enough. Go take them out. You know, it's kind of funny. Whenever God plays God, we have a problem with it. But when we play God, it's a moral right that we have. God has the right to judge his creation. He has the right to do so. And if we willfully forget and we willfully reject that truth, I can go on and do whatever I want to do. But another thing that they're being willingly ignorant of is what we see here in verse 7. It says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the word of God brought everything into existence. The word of God caused the judgment of God to come on this world 4,000 years ago in a worldwide flood where he wiped out all of humanity. By that same word, we are preserved and reserved until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Right now, God is sustaining us until that time. We are being sustained. We are being preserved and reserved until that coming judgment. This is, the last, this is one of the things that they are willingly ignorant of. Not only has Jesus Christ, not only has God created the heavens and the earth, not only does he have a right to judge it, but they are rejecting the fact that, he is, that they will face judgment one day again. That the coming judgment is going to come. In verse 8 it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. What that means is that God is being the creator of time itself, is outside of time. He's not bound by it. So as a day could be like a thousand years, and what happened 4,000 years ago is probably like a split second to God, even if that. And what's happening in the future, he's already there. He's outside of the time. Now that gives us the grounding for us to take a look at verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. He's not lazy Whenever it comes to his promise, remember in verse 4, they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he coming? And Peter's saying, look, it's not about that. You don't understand. A day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day to God. Understand this. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise like some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. Whenever they're scoffing at the fact that God is not, not coming, they're not realizing this fact that God is being patient with them. 
God is being patient. He's withholding his hand of judgment upon mankind in order that we may all come unto repentance. He says, but it's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it and will be burned up. Now, this is a very good question that we need to consider here. Because of all these things that are happening, because we live in a world in the last days where scoffers are mocking God, when they're willingly ignorant of the creation, God's judgment and the judgment to come, and that one day the Lord will come and this world will be burned up, it's being reserved until the day of judgment, and whenever he comes, it's going to be wiped out completely. Verse 11, therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for, the ha- looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As we continue, and because all of this is going to happen, because this is what we are going to be looking forward to, because this is what is going to be promised to us, it says, therefore, be loved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, blameless. Listen to what verse 15 says. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord the patience of God and his reservation of bringing judgment upon you right now, consider that salvation. The patience of God. Therefore, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. That is why we need to be found in the grace of God. That is why we need to find this position of grace where, where God's grace is. Because there's a coming judgment. And I want to be right with him. I don't want him to catch me not, uh, not doing what he's called me to do. I want him to catch me off guard. I want to be looking forward to that time. And whenever he comes, I want to be found in peace with him. The Bible's very clear. It's a very scary thing to be found Uh, to fall into the hands of an angry God. So what, how can we find this grace? How can we find this grace? Now, all that was introduction, and I'll briefly go through this. But how can we find that grace? Where's that position of grace? Whenever the Lord comes back, can I be like Noah and find grace in the eyes of the Lord? The first thing that we need is we need to look at Noah. How did he do it? The first thing we see, I pushed the wrong one. There we go. All right, there we go. The first thing that we need to see here, and what we find in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, is that he was a just man. He was a just man. And fortunately for us, the good news of the gospel is that God has sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in order that we may be justified before God. 
that we can stand before God as a just and a righteous person because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers each and every one of us for those who will surrender their lives to the Lord, repent of their sins, and trust Christ as their personal Savior, you can be justified. But only through him and by him is that possible. And if you want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord, the only way that it can happen is for this to happen. You must see yourselves for who you are in relation to who God is. We see ourselves as sinners, those of us who have, all of us have, have, uh, have come to a place in our life where we, where we have transgressed the very law of God. We have sinned against the very nature of who God is and have infinitely offended an infinite being who is a righteous judge who has the right to judge his creation. And he will judge his creation. Whenever we see ourselves for who we are in need of a Savior because we have broken God's law and we face judgment and we're going to have to face him on judgment day and we understand what we deserve, which is an eternity separated from him, but thankful, that, thankful and glory be to God that the fact that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die in our place. He sent his son Jesus Christ to take upon himself the judgment, the sentence that we deserved. And upon that cross, whenever Jesus was hanging there, God poured out his judgment on Jesus Christ, the things for which you and I deserved. The fact that Jesus Christ tasted death for all of mankind and it killed him because of the sin that we had committed. And God judged Jesus for what we did. And he died and he was buried and he was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and he's going to come back. But whenever he returns, we need to make sure that we can stand before him justified and stand before him strong and tall and confident, knowing that we belong to him. And the only way that we can be justified is if we bow to the cross of Calvary in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the work that he did on the cross. So how can we find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, the first thing is we must be a justified man. Secondly, we must be perfect in all generations. In the wicked and perverse generation in which we live, just as Noah was, it's a very difficult life to live, but however, we must stand firm in the teachings of the Word of God. We must make sure that we live a life according to what God has called us to do in this present world, regardless of how strong the temptations may be. We have an obligation to serve God and live it out according to His will and purpose. And the good news of the gospel gives us just that. You know, God has provided all of the necessary elements for us to do so. Do you know that we have all the resources we need in order to live a righteous life before a wicked generation? You've got all the resources you could possibly need in order for that to happen. First of all, we've got the blood of Jesus Christ that has cleansed us from all of our sins and, and, uh, and, um, and brought us into a righteous relationship with God. We now stand as a co-heir of Jesus Christ to the very throne. We are ambassadors of Christ, his representation here on earth. We are, we are one of God's children. We have the resources to do what he has called us to do in order to be considered perfect in our generation, blameless. Not only do we have that, but we have the very word of God. We have the word of God that we can actually open and we can dive into and we can learn and we can read and we can absorb and we can renew our minds according to the standard of the gospel of Christ and we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ we have the word of God to do that. We have the ability. This is just another resource for us to live our lives. It is profitable for doctrine. It is profitable for reproof. It is profitable for instruction in righteousness. 
But it's very difficult to live out what the Word of God says if we don't actually read it. We must take the time in order to do it. There's no substitution for it. You've got to get into the Word of God, and you've got to know it if you're going to live out your life in obedience according to it. But we also have the strength of the Spirit. We have the Spirit that is indwelling in us whenever we come to the knowledge of Christ as our personal Savior. The Holy Spirit indwells us and becomes a part of us and will lead us into all truth. He will convict us of sin and righteousness and of judgment. He will direct us in our lives and push us into the direction that we need to go. And if you're saved, you understand the struggle that you have between whenever you're trying to decide which, who to listen to, your own desires or, your, or the Holy Spirit. But we have the Holy Spirit that actually will help us in our day-to-day walk. He will help us to be perfect in our generation. He will help us to live an upstanding life according to the standards of what God um, has for each and every one of us. But even in that, God does not leave us alone. He doesn't leave us alone in that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you. We have the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us. We have the word of God that we can learn from and and dive into. We have the strength of the spirit. And we also have the providence of God that will establish you and guard you. We have no excuse for not living a life that can be considered perfect in this generation. Or that can be considered as, um, as blameless. To find no fault. Because I want you to understand whenever we claim to be a Christian, people are really trying to make you trip up. But with the help of the Lord and the resources that he has given us, we can live a life amongst the wickedness of men as Christ would call us to to live. In order to do that, we must be like Noah as well. In order for us to live a life amongst the generations as as something that is without blatant faults, as an upright, moral, integrity um, um, man, we must have a personal walk with God. We must have the saving faith, yes, but we also must continue to build upon that relationship and strengthen the fellowship that we have with our Savior. We must walk with God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, as as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, that we no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Our standard is no longer found in this world. Our standard is no longer found within our desires or our wants or our or um, or things that we want to see happening, but our desires are to fulfill what the Word of God calls us to do. It's to walk with God and allow Him to direct our paths. We walk in love. We walk as a children of light, one that would be exposing the darkness of sin in the world in which we live. We walk with God. Also, we walk with wisdom and understanding that God, uh, an understanding of what the will of God is in our lives. We cannot walk tall before man unless we are willing to bow low before God and serve him. We, got, we have to have a walk with God. That relationship must be nurtured. It must grow. And also, as we saw, is if we want to be found in, in God's grace, is we must do all that, is, um, we must do all that the Lord has commanded We must do all that the Lord commands us to do. If we want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord upon upon the day of judgment, 
It says observing, we need to make sure that we're not just observing some things, but we need to make sure that we're doing all things. Matthew 28 and verse 20, part of the Great Commission and part of our discipleship manual is that we're teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You know, we don't just go to the Word of God. We don't go to the commands of God as if it's a buffet or we just start picking the toppings off. No, if we're going to follow God, we're going to walk with God, and we're going to find grace in the eyes of God, we order up the supreme and we eat it all. We take in everything and we are obedient to God in all things that he has commanded us to do. That willful obedience to God allows you to stay in the grace of God. Now, I don't want to be misconstrued. We can never fall from the grace of God as far as salvation goes. Please understand, I'm not going there. Once saved, always saved. But the last thing we see here is that we must be preachers of righteousness, just as Noah was. We are to be proclaimers of his praises, according to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Now, just as, just as Noah was a preacher of righteousness, not only did he walk with God, not only did he live a life as, a, as someone of moral integrity amongst a brave, perverse, and wicked generation, but he preached what the righteous life is to be. He preached it and he shared with people that this is, what is, going, this is the way that life should be, probably very similar to the way that his, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, all the way up to Seth, Adam's son, his third son. They could all have given him instruction in this, and this is what he understood as, as he was a preacher of righteousness even in the midst of an ungodly generation. He preached righteousness. We are to preach righteousness. Why? Because there is a judgment coming. God has already judged this world in righteousness once with the flood. He has promised the coming of his son who has came he lived his life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, resurrected, and he's ascended into heaven, and he has promised to come back. And when he comes back, there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day that we will face our creator, and he will judge this world in righteousness. But God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish in the great judgment that is to come. But he does require that all come to him in repentance. We don't come to Christ on our own terms. We don't come to a right relationship with God any other way than the way that he has provided through his son, Jesus Christ. He's not slack concerning his promise like some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, very patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. And when we turn from our sin and we turn to God and we follow him, what do we find? I believe we'll be able to find the same place that Noah found. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. As we prepare for a time of invitation, I want us to really consider this. We do need to be blameless amongst the people. We need to be justified in Jesus Christ. We need to be blameless before the people because whenever it comes time for us to be a preacher of righteousness, it doesn't need to contradict the lifestyle that we're living. If you're like me, I can look back on my life and I can see that there were times that whenever I should have spoken, but I felt if I did speak, that I actually would have brought shame because of the life that I've been living in front of these people. They shut me up because I was embarrassed. And I, and I figured they may, they may mock me if I tried to bring it up 
the subject of God and salvation because of the lifestyle that had lived in front of them. That's why it's very important for us to live blameless in front of the world. And so when we do speak, they're not, they're not laughing at us. Remember what happened to Lot, his sons-in-law? They laughed at him, saying, come on, man, really? We don't want that reaction. So it's very important for us to be justified in God's sight, to be blameless before the world in which we live. We must walk with God continually and do all that he commands and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach righteousness. And we'll close with 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14 as we read that one more time. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Let's stand as we pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word this morning. We're so thankful that you're so gracious to extend time to us, Father, to extend time and to withhold your judgment and giving us time to work, to do your will, for people to come and to choose to repent of their sins, Father. Father, I pray there's someone here today that needs to do business with you, that now it will be done. Father, we want to thank you so much again for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.